Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. You might have noticed for the past few episodes, we've been digging into some financial stories, things that are a little bit more technical. And I think it's pretty important that we do that because otherwise what happens is these enormous stories happen, they get buried in technical language, no one quite understands them, they sound kind of boring, we just ignore them and move on. And meanwhile, something really important has happened. The Silicon Valley Bank collapse, the bailout, or was it a bailout that happened subsequently, may have dramatic effects across the economies, not just in the US, but here in Europe as well. There's a guy I've really wanted to talk to for a while who happily is going to join to give a different perspective. His name is Matt Stoller. He is part of the American Economic Liberties Project, and he runs a hit blog called Big, which is all about monopoly power and why we should fear it and what we should do about it. He joins us from DC. Hi, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. So we had David Sachs on, I think it was just three days ago. Um, he was very worried about what might happen if there wasn't a big step by the Fed to guarantee all depositors. He was predicting potential bank runs from regional banks. <gasps> and worse, and worse. <laughs> and uh, what he was asking for, he basically got, in that the Fed came in and said, no, we are going to guarantee all depositors and all deposits, which I believe includes businesses and individuals with no upper cap. Um, you aren't quite as convinced as he is that this was a good thing. Is that right? Yeah, they, they were just trying to scare the nerds in bow ties that control the world. Um, that's, a, that's not a technical, sorry for being too technical. I, um, yeah, look, this was just a panic. Uh, a bank did a, did a crappy job at managing risk um, so that their executives could make a lot of money. They were gambling with other people's money. They lost and uh, then the people whose money they were gambling with were freaking out, and they went to the regulators and scared them, and so the regulators uh, made them whole. That's really all this is, and uh, it's not, like, there was no, you know, it was not a, a I, I, it just wasn't, I mean, there, there might have been some problems, you know, in, in a couple of other banks that were insolvent, but it, it's essentially just a banking panic. And uh, instead of handling it like we should have, which is just let people who took risks eat losses, we decided to make them whole. And that was a, that's going to have really significant consequences. Before I get onto the consequences, which I really want to understand your perspective on, let me push back a bit. Because even if there was no contagion beyond Silicon Valley Bank, 
as I understand, they actually were the bankers for roughly half of the startups in the Bay Area, which is a lot of companies that are expected to make a big contribution to the American economy. If their deposits were just vanished overnight, because they weren't protected by the, the normal scheme for um, retail depositors, are you seriously saying that would not have been a big deal, nothing to panic about? I mean, it sounds like it could have been kind of a big deal. Well, I mean, if all their deposits had disappeared, yeah, of course, that would be really bad. But the thing is, is that their deposits weren't going to disappear. These were uninsured deposits. And um, the FDIC, which is the, the federal government agency that insures deposits and then takes over and deals with bankrupt banks, is very good at what they do. Uh, if we had just gone through and let the FDIC resolve the bank as they should have, today, most of the of all of the customers of Silicon Valley Bank would probably have access between to between 40 and 70% of their uh, deposits. By the end of the week, probably 80%. And in two to four months, you know, maybe, maybe they would have had access to all of it. Maybe they would have had to take a slight haircut. This was not a big deal. Um, Silicon Valley Bank lost some money, but they didn't lose it all. It's not like they put, it's not like they were lending, this is in 2008. It's not like they were lending to, to random uh, mortgage, you know, people who couldn't pay back their mortgages or, or betting on weird derivatives on synthetic instruments. They bought treasury bonds and they bought safe mortgage-backed securities and they took interest rate risk and then lost. But they just, they lost their capital. They lost um, some, you know, their bondholder money. But their uninsured depositors probably would have been fine if we had just gone through the regular resolution process. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Silicon Valley sort of stakeholders and the regulators freaked out and decided that they were going to backstop the entire banking system and allow banks to just get essentially what our government guaranteed deposits and gamble with it. And that's what they just did. So the argument against what you just said, which is what uh, David Sachs was putting forward, is even if it ended up only being a slight haircut, as you call it, basically you get 80% or 90% of your deposits back at the end of a longer process, the ripple effect of confidence would be that there are 5,000 banks in the US, only four of them are part of the big four that are officially considered too big to fail, his prediction was the obvious effect would be everyone would be shifting their bank accounts to one of the big four because, okay, 15% may not sound a lot to you, but to a startup company, that's a lot. Why take the risk? Everyone, there'd be this. So in effect, he was making a populist argument, and that's how he was couching no, it. No, he wasn't. I mean, no, he, he was wasn't. trying to say, the... otherwise there's going to be this aggregation of power in the big four. Why is he wrong? No, look, look. Okay, first of all, it's not like the uninsured depositors were innocent, naive types, like some of them were. But, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had stakes in 3000 different companies. They were if you put your money into Silicon Valley Bank, um, and an un uninsured basis, you you, um, you got what what was called white glove financial or white glove service, which is below cost mortgages, below cost lines of credit. And I'm not even talking about if you put your personal money, I'm saying, if you're a venture capitalist, like David Sachs, or you um, are a founder and you put your firm's money or the, the money of the firms that you invest in, which isn't your money, um, but if you put that money in, then you personally get access to, uh, to benefits, which it's essentially sort of quasi-bribes. So they were taking risk because they were getting a return on it. So it's not like these people were innocent, right? They took risks. 
They knew they were taking risks. I mean, it's not a secret that is a $250,000 FDIC deposit insurance limit. So you think all depositors were taking a risk that they should have known more about? All uninsured depositors, I mean, it's right there, right? When you open a bank account, it's right there. The FDIC has, it's very clear. And there are cash sweeps. You can use a cash sweep if you want, you know, one, two, three, four, $10 million worth of FDIC insurance. Like they just didn't want to. And that's because Silicon Valley Bank were, were giving them benefits or because they were doing bad, you know, risk management. I mean, it's it's just so the idea that you would, oh, everybody would freak out and go to the too big to fail banks. It's like, well, there are many options aside from that to keep your money safe if you want to. And the, the point of what David Sachs was doing was trying to scare the regulators, I guess, successfully to make the people whole who were who were taking these sort of silly risks. And and so, like, I don't I don't buy it. And I, I also think that, um, you know, we have to break up the too big to fail banks. Like, it's a really big problem that some of the banks are government backstopped. We should also just have a government bank. I mean, if we're going to have a like backs like a, a unofficial government banks, why not just let people open an account at the Fed if they want to and just, you know, use that for safekeeping? Um, you could also say that that like that if you um, you could create a special uh, deposit insurance for for um, for payroll, right? So if you're if you're managing payroll, you get special insurance from the FDIC so that there isn't like any kind of freeze on that. So there are all sorts of things that you could do here, but what they chose to do is they chose to give the full faith and credit of the United States to every regional banker in the country, and you know that's just a really bad idea. Like you don't want to give bankers access to taxpayer money that they can gamble with. Um, it's just, it's a bad idea. And, and the irony here actually about the too big to fail banks is that, you know, look, I worked on Dodd-Frank. It was, it was a crappy law. Um, we knew it was a bad law when we were writing it. It was embarrassing. I'm still embarrassed about it. But, you know, one of the things it did do is it put higher uh, prudential requirements on the big banks. So when JP Morgan wanted to do the same thing that Silicon Valley Bank wanted to do, they couldn't. And so JP Morgan is in a strong position, not because they, um, not because they're too big to fail, but because they're actually regulated and they had to have more liquidity on hand because the regulators told them to. So it, this is kind of like all sort of stupid and very irritating. And just like one more justification for this like entangled corrupt system, um, and policymakers who want to, you know, who, who are just afraid of their own shadows. It's, it's like, it's time we get over this. If you take risks, you have to eat the downside when things go wrong. I mean, that's just the reality here. And there wasn't even that much downside. I mean, it's just, all of it is embarrassing. And but for I, someone, I, I just, guess, you know. I, I mean, for someone who campaigns very successfully against monopoly power, do you not think in order to have a vibrant banking sector, you can't have one set of rules for the big guys i.e. your money is going to be safe if you deposit there, and a different set of rules for the little guys because the little guys are then at a disadvantage. They're, yeah, they're, they but, can't but be... you, you, don't, you don't see David Sachs saying, let's break up the big banks. You don't see the, all of the people who are saying, we need a bailout, saying, let's break up the big banks. Uh, we've been saying, break up the big banks for 10 years or 15 years. We pushed really hard to break up the big banks in 2010. And, you know, not with any help from Silicon Valley. Like all the people that are demanding a bailout now, where were they? You know, they they were absolutely protecting, 
you know, their relationships with JP Morgan, or, you know, because they want to bring their companies public or they want to arrange for private financing. I mean, that's what this this is just a, a sort of a, a broad class of people who protect each other. And, it, and if, if you I mean, if you want to deal with the problem, like, why not say, OK, we need a bailout and then we need to break up the large banks so they don't have a competitive advantage, which we should do, because obviously all the rules in Dodd-Frank say that there is no too big to fail. You know, we have something called the, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is a group of all the regulators, and they're supposed to look at any financial institution that might be problematic, and they actually have the authority to break up banks. So they could do this if they want to. And we all pretended for 15 years or 10 years that the banking system was stable. We had these stress tests, all of which is obviously garbage. If the 16th and 40th largest banks in the in the country, when they fail, it's a systemic risk event. This is a fragile banking system. I don't actually think it's that fragile. I don't think they had to bail them out, but they themselves acknowledge this is a fragile banking system. So let's go in, use the authority that exists in Dodd-Frank to restructure the banking system, which includes taking apart, apart the large banks, but also means tighter regulation on the regional banks. And look, if we want a real banking system that isn't socialized, which is what we've just done, then we need to actually make that happen. What is the world as it should be then? Because in a way, every bank is kind of a magic trick, isn't it? That we know that even with multiple stress tests, if, some, if everyone withdraws their money at the same time, that's going to be a potentially existential problem for the bank. So you need a bit of that, you need a bit of that feeling of confidence. Otherwise, this kind of stuff is going to happen all the time. That's where the Fed stepped in. If you're, if what you're suggesting well, is only just... For, only for uninsured deposits, right? And most banks are not. I mean, there are 5,000 banks in the U.S. Most of them are not financed with uninsured deposits. They're all mostly going to be fine. And then the problem with Silicon Valley Bank isn't just that it was illiquid. It's that it was insolvent or might be, might probably insolvent. And, uninsured uh, deposits just means that it's companies, not individuals, right? Or, or what, no, what, uninsured what deposits mean? means in, everyone gets access to it. When you have a, open a bank account, you're protected up to $250,000. Right. As, as an individual. As an individual. Or a firm, a small, you know, and, and you can get, if you can get more insurance if you want. There are ways to do that. So, um, but, but if you don't, then that, that deposit is, it's called an uninsured deposit. But so I guess the world as you would like it to be is one with, lots of smaller banks and people taking more calibrated risks. Maybe they're depositing in multiple banks and they're taking separate insurance policies in case one of them fails or, or what does it look like? So there are a lot of different ways to, to do, to organize a banking system. But what I want to see is some market discipline in the system, right? So banking is inherently a public enterprise, which is why we have, uh, why we have deposit insurance, why we have lender of last resort facility, and, you know, the way that you uh, that you deal with that is you either allow some market discipline in the form of um, of haircuts for uninsured depositors and bondholders and equity holders. And you also have aggressive banking regulation to prevent bankers from using um, essentially government guaranteed money to gamble with or you create Which is kind of what you know, we thought we'd done. Right. That first option is what we were told had happened post 2008. Roughly, I mean, no, because we uh, yes, that's what it's what people sort of pretended. But, you know, de facto, everybody understood that, that, that the too big to fail banks were government. They were government banks. They just weren't paid. The civil servants there were paid like they were taking actual risk and doing risk management, even though they weren't. 
Um, so uh, that's that's like the, the the fundamental problem is that we established a group of government backstop banks, but didn't treat them like they were government backstop banks. So that's the issue here. It's like we have a public utility system, only we don't treat it like a public utility. So the answer can be go away from that and break up the banks and make sure that you don't have um, these these banks um, that are too big to fail and allow for a lot more sort of risk management on the part of people that hold cash. You could also go uh, the other direction and just say socialize it all, which I don't think is a good idea. Or you can kind of like have a mix, which I think it probably makes some sense where you take apart these banks, you make them uh, much less fragile and um, you regulate them more aggressively. But then you also establish a uh, like like the the big banks have an account at the Fed where they can do a number of different they can manage a number of different facilities, but it's risk free. If they have cash, they can put it at the Fed. You just allow everybody to have that uh, capacity. We used to have postal banks in the United States. There are a lot of countries that have um, government banks. If you just want a place for self for safekeeping, maybe to manage payroll in your business or a municipality or um, a nonprofit, whatever, and you want to put it somewhere and pay a small fee just for safekeeping, we should allow people to do that at the Federal Reserve instead of having, you know, government banks that we call JP Morgan or Bank of America or whatever. And so that's kind of that's kind of this. I would I would take apart a lot of these banks so you have more uh, banks that are closer to communities and you allow for some risk management. And that would also establish a place for safekeeping that we already have, but only for the big guys. The net effect of all of that would probably be the closure of a lot of small banks, because as a customer, you're just going to kind of go for the what seems like the safest option, and would be a huge growth in people depositing or banking directly with the Fed, which I think my guess is some of our more sort of anti-establishment viewers might be with you up to the first point, like break up the big banks, it's a bit of a stitch up. But then when you start saying bank directly with the government, a lot of people will be a little bit spooked by that because it, it you feel like the government has enough control over your finances. You don't want to just hand it straight to central government. Well, most banks, you know, most people would would will stay with their bank because it's a it they're you know, they're guaranteed up to $250,000 and then they can do cash sweeps if they want more. And those banks are often provide additional services. Um, there are, you know, relationships with with bankers. So, you know, that it's a relationship business. So I, um, I you know, I don't think there's a reason to imagine that those 5,000 banks are going to go out of business. What you will see is that some uninsured depositors, if they get uh, a frightened instead of empowering JP Morgan with cheap de uninsured deposits they'll just go to the to the federal reserve and you won't have any kind of any problems um you know it's not i don't think that you're going to see this massive transformation it's just that if you know you you're a municipality and you want to keep your money somewhere you can do that if you want to um i do think that um uh you know look i'm not a i'm not a libertarian i'm a populist and at some level the government is just, you know, all banks are basically, they're chartered by the government. They, they are inspected by the government. Um, they are, have access to a whole financial safety net that is provided by the government. So, you know, this isn't, 
a, a huge step change in how we see things. It does go get away from this illusion that we have that the banking system is kind of private and just acknowledges that it's not. But I think that's an illusion. So I don't really, you know, I don't really see a reason to... to Talk yeah. to us about what's just happened because the intuition that a lot of people have is that somehow the bankers are always getting rich out of whatever the situation is. And whoever the invest, there was rumors of money being withdrawn from Silicon Valley Bank by directors in the days before. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, there's this. Well, they were, I mean, they were handing out bonuses hours before the FDIC guys were going in there. Right. So it's not, I mean, this isn't like, it's not yeah. hard to okay, see so, what was so, happening. Paint the picture then. Who has got rich out of this? So uh, who's gotten rich out of this in, uh, well, first of all, you know, obviously Silicon Valley Bank executives, I mean, they were told in 2020, you know, their own employees were going to them and saying, hey, we just got a huge influx of deposits. We need to go into shorter duration bonds to manage our risk more effectively. And management said, nah, we don't want to hedge. Uh, we prefer the the profits, you know, which is which is as many of your viewers probably know. That's just classic, you know, picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. Only the thing is, is these executives, you know, they were getting bonuses based on off the cash profits, even though that's not really a profit. That's just what is left over after you, um, you, you know, you you pretend there aren't going to be future losses. Um, but they, if they get paid off of off of that, then you know you're going to have this 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 poor incentive structure. So the Silicon Valley executives obviously got rich, and then there's you know same with the signature bank types. Um, and then you know to the extent that you see this kind of behavior at other banks, which is unusual. I mean, let's be clear about something: Signature and Silicon Valley were financed with uninsured deposits at an extreme level, and almost no other regional bank is like that. I mean, you have First Republic, but they, about 65% of First Republic's deposits were uninsured, 90 to 95% of um, Signature and Silicon Valley banks were uninsured. And so that's, you know, this, this is not a, a common business model. Um, but, uh, but Do you think we'll find out, did, by the way, Matt, do you, do you think we will find out in time the inner workings of banks like these? I mean, will there be emails? Will there be depositions? Will we find oh, yeah. out they're who, investigating. They, who said they're what, investigating why did right this now. happen? Right. They're investigating right now and they're going to, um, you know, potentially bring insider trading charges against the CEO, uh, Greg Becker, who was selling stock a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to get away with um, what they did. But I, I wanted to say there are other stakeholders that are going to that are going to do really that are going to do well here. I mean, I think a lot of the the Silicon Valley stakeholders that were getting, um, you know, white glove service, they were made whole and they were, you know, they were getting um, all sorts of benefits, not as much as the Silicon Valley executives, but they got made whole, which is a huge, huge subsidy. So this is the idea that like a, a venture capital investor who has maybe 100 different investments in 100 companies will be pointing all of their companies to Silicon Valley Bank. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we'll get some kind of benefit from that. Is that what you mean by the white glow? That's right. And um, and so, you know, I don't know what kind of arrangement Mark Cuban had with Silicon Valley Bank, but he had eight to ten million dollars, you know, sitting in a de- in a deposit account there. He probably would take a five percent haircut. It doesn't really matter to him. But that's still a, a significant subsidy to to um, somebody who, you know, was was taking risk. And everybody knows Mark Cuban knows that like he's a, he knows risk management. Um and you know, same with the with Roku, who's who had five hundred million dollars of cash in Silicon Valley Bank, or or um, uh, Coinbase, which had a couple hundred million dollars with Silicon Valley Bank. These companies, they would have taken a small haircut, but they had risk managers. They should have known better. Uh, so they're gonna they're gonna do well here. And then the rest of the banking system, I think, you know, a lot of banks uh, would have had to manage their risk more carefully, and they would have had to. Um, uh, a focus on on ensuring the safety of their uninsured deposits, and now they don't have to. And so this was effectively a large subsidy to the rest of the banking system, particularly the regional banks that would have um, that would have had uh, trouble and now aren't going to have trouble. And I don't mean trouble in the sense that they would have had a bank run, um, but trouble in the sense that they would have um, been forced to. Uh, do less risk, take less risk to, to make sure that they had enough collateral on hand to, to deal with any deposit uh, demands that, that came in. So this is the really big effect, isn't it? Because Silicon Valley Bank at the end of the day is just one bank, a significant one nonetheless. But the ripple effect on the rest of the 5,000 banks we're talking about, right down to smaller regional banks and, and others, must surely be, okay, ultimately the Fed is going to step in, so we're going to be fine. So they will be incentivized to be more risky, or they'll feel we can take bigger risks, whatever the rules allow, because we're going to be kind of bailed out. So, so I, I would, I would sort of one part of that I would quibble with, which is that that you have the two big to fail banks, right, which we all acknowledge is a is a problem, and then we have the regional banks, which are you know between one hundred and seven hundred billion dollars of assets, and there's there's some of them, but they're not that many, and they're the ones that would have had some problems here. Then you have the banks that are smaller than that that are financed largely by insured deposits that are not, they don't benefit from this, and they are uh, not backstopped. So the FDIC has no problem going in there and like wiping them out because it wouldn't be a systemic event if you have 
you know, if you have a small bank that has some uninsured deposits, like those guys are kind of screwed because they're not big enough to worry the regulators and they're not politically powerful enough to worry the regulators. So what you're actually doing is you're probably crunching the U.S. financial system from a system of 5,000 banks to one that will have maybe 200 banks. So like the community, you got to distinguish between the community banks and the regional banks. And this was really good for the regional banks and really bad for the community banks. There's this one detail about insured deposits that I just want to get to the bottom of for our viewers. When you talk about a large percentage of uninsured deposits, that makes it sound like a kind of risky situation. Does that in effect mean lots of smaller depositors, people who are below the 250,000 threshold? Yeah, that's right. So, so the community bank is is mostly financed with with smaller depositors, and I mean, and and to be clear, having a lot of uninsured deposits is not it's not a big problem if you have reasonable risk management on the other side, because you know if you if all of a sudden those depositors decide they want to they want to go, um, if you have enough collateral, you can go to the Federal Reserve or you can go to the Federal Home Loan Banks. And you can give them that collateral in return for temporary liquidity and honor the depositors until the bank panic is over. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank is they just didn't have enough collateral because they had made some bad bets. So it's not like like uninsured deposits are are you're more vulnerable to a run. But it it the issue really really here was was solvency of Silicon Valley Bank, not the fact that they were vulnerable to a run. The run was a function of the fact that they had big losses. What do you think happens next, throwing this forward a bit? Is this the end of an episode, or do you think it's the beginning of a longer and more serious period in, in financial stability? Well, it's a really interesting question. And I mean, you, I think you saw this um, in, in England in a, different, in a different way with the, um, the Liz Truss and the pension funds that you know, had really serious problems. And it's the same dynamic where you have um, you've had really low rates and tight and loose finan- financing conditions, and now we're moving into uh, back, back to sort of a normalized world. And all of these structures that were built on low rates are under stress. And the reason that um, that we have to tighten financing conditions through both quantitative tightening and higher rates is because of inflation. And now things are starting to break that the regulators are very concerned about. Now, it, does this mean that they're going to give up on their fight against inflation? And that, and I think that's really kind of, that's what's interesting here. And, and I, you know, this was what the, uh, there's a Federal Reserve governor named Tom Honig who had been warning against doing quantitative easing for 10 years and saying zero interest rate policies are dangerous because you're creating all sorts of fragility in the system. And when you have inflation, either asset inflation or just inflation of goods and services, you won't be able to deal with it. And that's the situation that we're in right now. So, um, so I, I mean, I, I am really worried about a reacceleration of inflation because what, you know, you're seeing like Bitcoin is going up, you know, crazy. The stock market is doing really well because, you know, once these guys realize, okay, We've gotten bailed out um, where our balance sheets are fine and our liabilities, you know, got taken care of. We can go back to speculating and that few, that could fuel an inflationary uh, fire. If regulators, you know, come in and say, no, you're not going to do that. You can potentially take care of that. But, you know, so does that mean really you dangerous. think you want to see more interest rate hikes or at least you want 
you, you don't want the Fed to go soft yeah. on inflation. No, I think the Fed needs to go hard on inflation. Um, I think it needs to tighten and and engage in more quantitative tightening. And if the banks, uh, if the whole banking system has serious problems as a result, which I you know they don't right now, but they could if the if if this continues, then we may need uh, capital injections into the banks and a restructuring of the banking system. Because either you know you've got to deal with inflation. If you don't deal with inflation, then you know, you are going to have very serious political instability. Um, and if we have a French fragile banking system, then we're going to have to address that. It's like, are you going to maintain the stability of the banking system and allow inflation to run wild? I mean, like, what's the choice that you have to make? And I think, you know, I'm really in interested to hear what the how the regulators think about this, because most people, you know, most people think of inflation as coming from uh, you know, too much government spending or, or, um, uh, or, or, or too much, um, you know, lower interest rates, people get enticed to borrow. But actually, you know, Hyman Minsky noted that inflation comes from bailouts. When you bail out um, financiers who are engaged in money creation through speculation and lending, um, and, and they're, you know, when there's a credit crunch, if they get bailed out, then they go right back to that and sort of supersize it. Which is also why this question of populism and politics is so important, because people are really pissed off. This, what you just described, is pretty much what happened in 2008. It was a reckless decisions, and then there were bailouts. The rules didn't change enough. Meanwhile, we had this weird long period of quantitative easing, minimal uh, interest rates that a lot of people did very well out of, people mainly with assets as opposed to people without assets. Now here we are in 2023, there's another confidence crisis, another screw up by a bank, another what looks like to be a bailout. And what, from what you're saying, it feels like people with assets, people in the banks, people making bigger financial speculation are going to be the winners. And the people who are going to have to pay at the end of the story are ordinary taxpayers. Yeah, I think that that's one um, that's one possibility here, and it seems it seems like that's what the they're kind of leaning to. I mean, Janet Yellen and uh, Jay Powell have kind of learned their politics and their ideology is to, is to preserve asset prices, kind of at all costs, right? So they the reason they got scared is because they were worried that uh, that there would be a reduction of of asset prices. And so they, they said, we have to backstop the banks. Otherwise, you will see uh, a credit crunch instead of recognizing that sometimes that's what you need. Um, and, and you can't just maintain artificially high asset prices or politically maintained asset prices uh, if you want to have. And then, you know, later on, you know, tax them down a little bit or, or do a little bit of just redistribution here. It like it fundamentally distorts the productive capacity of an economy. It overweights the economy towards speculation, towards the financial sector. It underweights making things uh, and, and doing real uh, business and commerce. And so that's that's, you know, what 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 we have now is a society, at least in the U.S. And I think you could argue it's a global dynamic where where it's a very sort of finance forward mindset, like our economy is run by central bankers. And it, that's a really we need an economy that's run by people who make things, as we saw during the during the, um, you know, during the, the early stages of covid, 
you, you know, you, you can't print medicine, like you can't print plastic bags, you can't print the physical things that we need to keep ourselves alive. And the more that we focus on, uh, on preserving asset prices and preserving the primacy of finance, the uh, less emphasis we're going we're gonna to put on maintaining the stuff that actually keeps us healthy and safe. Final thought for you here, which I guess is a broader philosophical one. Who are the good guys? Where are the people to be excited by? Because we had a Republican administration in the US. Equities went through the roof. Now we've got a Democrat, uh, Democratic administration. Equities are still doing pretty well, considering the turbulence. And as you said, this administration just done, you know, basically prioritized banks, assets, and are too scared to to take any action like that. Meanwhile, we have an ex-Goldman Sachs banker as our prime minister, and clearly he views the world in a similar way. Who is going to change this? Or is it just on a kind of conveyor belt to more of the same? Well, I think, I mean, I look at, um, so I think that that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren is one of the good guys here. I mean, she's been pretty aggressive about saying um, that we need to break up the big banks, we need uh, tighter regulation, and, you know, she's basically been right about a lot of it. I know people, you know, a lot of people don't like her, but, you know, if you look at the policy just on banking, she's been correct on pretty much everything that she said. And so, you know, and there are other... Was she against this bailout? I don't actually know if she was against this bailout, but she was um, She was against the 2018 um, deregulation bill that allowed Silicon Valley Bank to put this forward. She was against, you know, she was pushing for the breakups in 2010. Um, I'm sure she would be seeking uh, FSOC to break up the large banks. I'm sure she's written letters on that. I mean, generally speaking, that that's kind of... Okay, um, so Elizabeth you know, Warren. That's what she... I, you know, Sheila Baer just came, came out with, a, with a, um, an editorial in the Financial Times saying, you know, we didn't need to bail out these banks or if we... If we did bail them out, then there's more, um, there's a, a substantial amount of fragility. I mean, I think Tom Honig, who's a former FDIC vice chair and board of governor of the Fed, I mean, he's pretty heroic for speaking out the way that he has. Um, and I, I think that you see a lot of good work around, I mean, this is a different area, this is what I focus on, but uh, in antitrust action to try to constrain the size of large in corporations, not necessarily banks, but um, I mean, there are, you know, they do handle banks as well, but, you know, so you see, like, there's a lot of different parts of the bureaucracy that, um, that didn't want this. I mean, I think if you look at the, like the FDIC, like the Fed were the ones that were pushing this, they were pushing this bailout in Thursday evening and the FDIC was coming in and initially made the right decision to liquidate the bank. And then by Sunday, they were pushed back by a bunch of policymakers. So there was a debate within government. And, um, and, and I, you know, I think you saw, you know, Republican Senator J.D. Vance, you know, 10 days ago, the Republican senators all wrote on the banking committee, all wrote a letter to the Fed being like, don't regulate the banks aggressively. And J.D. Vance wasn't on that letter. And that was very, you know, telling. So there's there, what there you're seeing strands. is a kind of rethink. Right. Yeah, there are strands. There's a there's a sort of a rethink of how we do policy. And I, I don't think that you're going to see the same um, sort of confusion after the financial crisis or after this crisis that you did after the financial crisis. I think you're going to see a lot of skepticism and a lot of confidence, people saying, no, what you did, we don't agree with. We think that's a problem. And you're going to see some real pushback on what these policymakers did, which I think will be helpful. So I'm not a pessimist here. I'm very angry about what they did. Um, 
but I'm not a pessimist. And then I, I think the other thing that that could I just see, ask? Do you really think do you, in that coalition, you, there's, there are kind of left-leaning voices there, such as Elizabeth Warren, who are obviously comfortable with state power, and then there are right-leaning voices like J.D. Vance, who are also comfortable with the state using its power to break up big corporations. What about libertarians? I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy, someone who is running for president, he's a he's a kind of libertarian, I guess. He's been very opposed to what David Sachs was saying in the last few days. Do you think there's a, a the libertarians will be sort of paradoxically added to your cause here? No, I, I don't. I don't take them seriously. I think that they are, um, you know, I, I, I haven't. Uh, so, so if you look at sort of the center of libertarianism in DC, it would be the Cato Institute. Um, if you want regulators who are going to stand up to the banks, then you're going to need to, to, you know, there was a, there was a very clear choice in 2018. Um, there was that bill, which, you know, Cato Institute supported and, Sally Omarova, who was later, who was a professor at Cornell, she opposed it. She opposed integrating crypto into the financial system. And then Biden nominated her to be the head of the Office of Control of the Currency, which is a very powerful bank regulatory agency. And the libertarians went crazy opposing her. Um, and she ultimately was defeated because of her opposition to the 2018 bank regulatory bill. If she had been there, she would have been one of the voices, maybe one of the only voices saying, don't bail these guys out. So I don't take libertarians seriously because they don't have a track record of actually supporting tough regulators who are willing to make tough decisions. They have a track record of supporting deregulation and uh, and letting bankers do whatever they want. And then they whine about things like FDIC insurance that they know aren't going to be repealed. And then when a bailout happens, like afterwards, they say, we didn't like that. I don't think they're serious. Um, and, and I don't think the idea that you can do something without state power is a coherent idea. All of banking is, exists because of state power. The question is not whether to use state power. The question is, how are we going to structure these markets? How are we going to write rules to structure these markets through public institutions? There is no free market that just makes these things happen. That's never like, there's no free market that grants a bank charter. A government does that. And so if you can't accept that basic dynamic, and I don't think Vivek can, then you're not, I don't take you seriously as somebody who has a coherent view of the world. Final, final question. I know you said, I said the last one was my final question, but I'm sneaking in one more here. Do you think this will result in more populist politics? Do you think people will be radicalized, people will be angry about what they perceive as yet another financial stitch up where rich people win and the taxpayer foots the bill. Do you think that's going to happen? I think it depends. Um, I think it depends on decisions in the next couple of weeks uh, about, you know, whether whether regulators are going to al allow inflation to go wild so that they can preserve the value of financial assets. If they do, then you're going to see, a, I think, a really substantial populist uh, upswing. Um, I know that my friends in all over the government are furious, um, absolutely furious. And the people who have been saying, you know, don't let banks do this are absolutely livid. So I, you know, I think that there, you're going to see a redoubled commitment to, um, you know, to, to reigning in these banks. But I also think that Silicon Valley is going to be in, you know, political trouble from this because people have been saying, oh, it's, you know, it's the big guys, it's Google, it's Facebook, it's in, in, and that, that are the issue. 
But now, you know, they're going to be tagged with the scarlet letter of, of bailout, right? And, and they, I don't think they realize that, but that's just, no one will ever forget that Silicon Valley got bailed out. They're just not going to forget that. And that's going to cause them political problems going forward. Matt Stoller, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thanks so much. That was Matt Stoller. Thank you to him for a very different view. We had David Sachs on a few days ago. He had one view, which is that the bailout absolutely needed to happen. Unless people feel confident in the banking system, the economy can't function. This wasn't a realistic choice. And he sometimes describes as a libertarian. So that was interesting. Meanwhile, Matt Stoller there, a real expert on monopolies, on how large corporations end up kind of enmeshing with government and just benefiting He had some really interesting things to say. I'm not sure exactly who was right, but I hope you are nonetheless informed. And we'll see you next time. This was Unheard.